We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read in the book of the Revelation, chapter 15. We may read again from the beginning of this chapter. John writes, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name stand on the sea of glass having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thy King of saints, and so on. John is here shown something that he describes as great and marvelous. He has seen many marvelous things throughout the book, but here he is speaking of something that is truly marvelous and will be marvelous in the experience of the redeemed people of God. It is so marvelous that it is as though John is searching for words to actually describe what he's seeing. Verse 2, he says, I saw as it were. It's as though this scene that was before me, the only way I could describe it is like this. It was as though I was seeing a great sea of glass or crystal and it was mingled with fire. It was the only way he could, as it were, describe it. But he says, standing where this great throng of people and they had gotten the victory. They were triumphant. They were victorious. They had overcome all kinds of difficulties. And here they're standing and they are singing. Now you go back to chapter 14. We noted at the beginning of the chapter the great crowd that are with the Lamb and Mount Zion. And there they are with their mark of identification, and they are a happy people rejoicing because they have been followers of the Lamb whithersoever he goeth, and they are now triumphant, and it's the same people that John is seeing again. You know that if a photographer wants you to Uh, have a picture in your mind of a particular scene. They just don't focus the camera straight on and 
take a picture, that's it. They move from different angles and they take the same scene, the same picture from different angles so that you who look at the picture get a fuller, a clearer, a better knowledge and understanding of what was depicted. And that's what we have here. The view of certain great wonders as it were, from a different angle. And here is John seeing the triumphant saints who have come out of great tribulation. And we're told in verse 3, they sing. These are the redeemed saints of God. These are the triumphant saints of God. And what are they doing in the presence of God? They're singing. They're singing God's praise. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. What are they singing? Great and marvelous are thy works. What did John say he saw? I saw another sign in heaven. Great and marvelous. And then they're singing about the works of the Lord that are great and marvelous. What a sight this was to John. This is marvelous. This is a great sight. This is a marvelous scene. This great multitude of people, and they're praising God, they're singing as redeemed, glorified, liberated saints. Now, When the church of Christ comes together, when the saints meet to sing God's praise, it ought to be in the truest sense as a foretaste of heaven. If you do not enjoy, you mightn't have a very harmonious voice. And you may not think that you're very capable of adding much harmony to the praise of God. But if you do not enjoy singing God's praise here, I don't know how you're going to fit into heaven. Because here the saints are singing and they are rejoicing in the great and marvelous works of God. They're now understanding the works and the ways of God as being great works and marvelous works. God has wrought greatly, God has wrought marvelously on their behalf. And yet, who are they? You go back to verse 2. Who are they? Them that had gotten the victory. They had to overcome in order to be singing these praises of God. They overcame who? They had the victory. They got the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number 
of his name. Now in the past, we have looked at the identity of the beast. We saw the beast rising up out of the sea. Then we saw another beast rising up out of the earth. And the beast that rises up out of the earth, he serves the purposes of the beast who rises out of the sea, who is energized by the power, the satanic power of the dragon, the old serpent, Satan, and so on. Now, here we're told that they have overcome all this satanic power. This satanic power that has spread its influence right across the earth, right everywhere among men. Now, you go back to the book of Daniel, to chapter 7, and you have in the visions of Daniel... Daniel has been shown the purpose of God to set up an everlasting kingdom. But he begins with four bees rising out of the sea. Four bees that represent four great kingdoms, great powers, worldly powers that rise out of the sea out of the chaos and the turmoil among men. But then, later in the same chapter, you see that God tells, or the angel tells Daniel, something further about these four great world powers. They are four kings that arise out of the earth. So you see, that which rises out of the sea and that which rises out of the earth, in reality, is all of one source. It all represents the same thing in reality. Now we have looked at this satanic power, what we refer to as this satanic uh, trinity, this power that is motivated and activated against the church of Jesus Christ, against the saints of God. And the power is so great that it is capable of putting even some of the saints to death. So when these are singing about the great and marvelous works of God, They are now understanding what God has really been doing. You remember what Paul says. He says now, and he's speaking as an apostle, now we see through a glass darkly. That's all we can see presently. Whatever we think we see or understand, we see through a glass darkly. But then we shall know even as we are known. It will all be opened up in a way and made clearer to an extent we can't even imagine. 
And here are these saints, and they are singing, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. And they also sing, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Now you imagine what they're overcoming. You imagine what they're warring with. We wrestle not, Paul tells the Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. It's hard to convince us of that, isn't it? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world. That's what we're up against. And here they have overcome. They've got the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark of identification and over the number of his name. Now when they are battling to overcome, when they are pursuing by grace the victory, taking the sword of the Spirit, wearing the helmet of salvation, when they are warring against these great powers, maybe they're greatly mystified. Why? Why is it this way? What is God doing, or perhaps... What is he not doing? And they may be troubled and anxious and wondering why if God is in the midst of his church and among his people, why is this their lot? And sometimes as individuals, the people of God as well as the church collectively are often wondering, just like Job, What is God doing? Can't understand it. It seems contrary to his promise. It seems in opposition to what I understand to be his purpose. But look at what the saints are singing now. Great and marvelous. When we see it all come together, when we see what it all brought us to, when we see now that we've gotten the victory, now we understand what God was doing. Now we can appreciate the marvel of his work of redemption, the marvels of his providential care and his providential keeping and the grace that he gave. Marvelous! He worked it all together. He wrought it all out. Nothing failed of his promise. Nothing was out of place. He had it all purposed from eternity. And what are they saying? Just and true are thy ways. You ask these dear sins, Did God do any injustice? 
No. Did God make any mistakes? Most certainly not. Just and true are thy ways. And they wouldn't change anything. God did it well. God wrought it out perfectly. He has brought his redeemed church through trials and troubles and difficulties. He has allowed the powers of darkness to harass and trouble and even overcome. But here they're singing, God knew best. God did it all well. He wrought out my redemption. He brought me home to glory. And he did it his way. Not as I would have myself purposed it. So here is a glorious sight. But along with this, John says he sees seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. Now these great, this great throng of redeemed, yes, they felt the wrath of the beast. They have felt the wrath of the dragon and all his appointed powers. But those who have subscribed to the teaching and the theology and the religion Of the beast, they are to partake of the wrath of God. And here is the redeemed since the church rejoicing that although they have passed through difficulties, the seven angels with their seven vials of wrath cannot harm them. They are secure and they are kept by divine power. But let us go back a moment just to where we were a few weeks ago in chapter 17. As we said earlier concerning Daniel's visions, there were four great powers right up to the power of Rome. Babylonian power, the great Medo-Persian power, the Greek power, and eventually the Roman power. Now we're not to think that when Babylon falls, then there's something distinctly, absolutely distinctly new appears on the earth. Babylon is incorporated into the new empire. Babylonish practice, Babylonish religion, Babylonish culture. Then when we move to the great Greek empire, are we to think, well, everything of Babylon disappeared out of sight now. 
has to have done. We've advanced away beyond that. We're now steeped in Greek culture and Greek philosophy and Greek religion. What about the Roman Empire? It is diverse from all the kingdoms that have gone before. But it has within it all the mindset and the philosophy and the false religion and the idolatry. It has maintained it all. Now, when you and I come to our day and generation in the 21st century, where do we really think we are? What do we really think is the state of our society in the 21st century? Oh, you say, well, all these great empires have disappeared from the pages of history almost, We don't live like the Babylonians. We don't live like the Greeks. We certainly don't like live or worship idols like the Romans with all their uh, multi-faith, multi-religion thinking. The fact is that we live in a day when we've got all these manifestations of ancient worship and godlessness all combined together, reinventing itself sometimes, but manifesting itself in our society. As I said earlier on one occasion, imperial Rome certainly fell. But it was taken over by Papal Rome. And Papal Rome, to this very day, has a tremendous influence. Pope Francis is considered to be one of the ten most influential persons in the world of today and politicians, and prime ministers, and monarchs, they feel under an obligation to visit him and have advice from him, and so on. Now that system, I believe, I stand with the reformers in this, is represented or symbolized and spoken of, identified here in Revelation 17. The woman riding upon the scarlet-colored beast. Now, we're not going to go back over the ground already covered. But I want to point out something of this woman's character, her attire, her character, her name, that lives on to this very day and is infecting, her spirit is infecting the church right now and is in danger of infecting, yes, reformed 
churches. What kind of a woman is this? Take a look again. Verse 3 of chapter 17. He carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. And I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven seven heads and ten horns. The very first thing you will note is this. She's in control. It's not the beast controlling the woman. It's the woman controlling the beast. That's the first thing to note. This is a controlling woman. Secondly, you will see that the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, which we uh, did uh, seek to Uh, explain. You have to understand that when John is writing this book, he was writing as one who was living in the heart, as it were, of the Roman Empire. And he was part of the church surviving in the atmosphere of idolatry and heathenism and immorality. You see, even before Jesus came into this world, laws had come into play in the empire throughout the Roman Empire, very particularly in Rome itself. Prior to the Caesars establishing themselves in power, in society, women were often oppressed and suppressed. Roman authority introduced laws that enhanced the lot of the female, the woman gave her all kinds of rights that she previously never had. With those rights, we are introduced in Roman society to a new type of woman. A new woman has appeared on on the scene. She now has rights. She now asserts herself. She now can take positions of power and she can now use her feminine muscle to get what she wants, when she wants, and where she wants. Now the church of Jesus Christ is right in the middle of all this. A 
And as you well know, the church has to battle against the inroads of the spirit of the world and the ideology of the world and the thinking and culture of the world. And as converts were coming into the early church, they were coming out of this. And they just didn't leave everything behind when they came. And that is why you have so much teaching, particularly in Paul's epistles, as to what the Christian woman ought to be like. The spirit that ought to govern her and her behavior. Here is this woman in chapter 17 of Revelation, how she described. How is she attired? Well, she's a harlot to begin with, so she wears the attire of a harlot. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet color, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls and so on. You see, the Romans, at the time when John would be writing this, had laws even regarding attire. And a woman could be a prostitute by profession legally. She couldn't be arrested, she couldn't be imprisoned. She's legally entitled to make her living as a prostitute. But she is required by law to identify herself. And she must wear a name and dress in the attire that would make her recognized as a prostitute. Here is this harlot woman attired unashamedly. I'm a prostitute. I am a harlot. What does that mean? She is without morality. She serves her own interest. She is unfaithful to any man or any husband. That's why we agree with the reformers. This represents the harlot church of Rome, the professed bride of Christ, the apostate church that claims to be the bride of Christ but is unfaithful to Christ. Now notice that it states she is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Now, we were to take our modern terminology. We were to take it back to John's time. What would we be saying about this woman? She is very obviously a feminist. 
She is a feminist. This is the great harlot system. You and I may think, oh well, feminism is becoming rampant in modern society. What do we ever hear about? You cannot listen to the radio, to the news, even once, hardly nowadays, but what do we hear all about? Empowerment of woman. Empowerment. Well, we want muscle now. They want to be empowered. We're going to take over. Men are ruining the world. Let the woman at it. We'll straighten it all out. We'll sort everything out. And now it's worldwide. You talk about homosexuality and the gay movement and so on. And it's spreading nation by nation by nation right across the globe. Now what's happening? A great movement to embarrass parliaments throughout the world. We don't have enough women in this parliament. We don't have enough women here, there. We better get the movement on the go. We better get more women in the great feminist movement. Where does it have its roots? What is the greatest advert for feminism that you or I have ever been confronted with? What is the great system that represents above every other system feminism? The harlot church of Rome, the very present Pope, what is he always doing? Before he goes on any trip, he has to go and pray to Mary. You go throughout the Roman Catholic world, and what do you see? Statues everywhere to St. Peter or St. Paul or St. John or Joseph or whatever else. No! The blessed Mary, the mother of God, the great feminist system. And more and more, you hear how poor deluded souls are taught that you come to Jesus through Mary. You come to God through Christ, but you can't come to Christ, but through Mary. It is a great feminist movement. Has always been. There's always been religions throughout the world that have been uh, devoted to female gods. But none of them can compete with the system of Rome. Now you might say to me, well, what has that to do with us? What has that to do with us 
free Presbyterians. We're against the Church of Rome. We've always been. We're against feminism. We've always been. Here is the spirit of feminism back in John's day. And its influences spread to this very generation. And it is endangering the church of Jesus Christ. For me, it is a mighty sad spectacle to see the president, supposedly of the greatest country in the world, being prayed for by a female minister because she supposedly the great the greatest of the woman preachers out in America. Paula White, if you want to know her name. Suppose one of the great rich richest woman preacher probably yet it doesn't seem to matter that she had an affair with another world-famous preacher. She had an affair, and the other, Benny Hinn, they had an affair. Benny Hinn's wife exposed it all. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're a better preacher if you can pass through that experience, apparently. We are dragged down, down, down into the gutter in this day and age in which we live. But why do I draw attention to these things? Because I want to take you over with me, if you will, to the first epistle that Paul writes to the Corinthians. And in the 14th chapter, and I want you to pay attention, because we're living in a day when the supposed evangelical church doesn't agree with the word of God, and goes its own way. We, as the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, have throughout our history opposed the ordination of any woman to any office in the church. And that for very good reason. Because we take our stand on the clear, let me say, clear teaching of God's word. Now, Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthian church, he had to, they had written, go back to chapter 7, and there Paul says, verse 1, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, there were concerned souls in the church at Corinth. And they turned to the Apostle Paul because of the abuses 
that were developing and they wanted Paul to use his apostolic authority and his teaching ability to straighten out these matters. These abuses were taking place in the assemblies of the people of God in Corinth. There was abuse in the offices. The women were not submissive to the men. And the women were taking it upon themselves to fulfill a role that was forbidden. Feminism, the spirit of Romish feminism, legalized feminism had gotten into the church in Corinth. So Paul has to deal with it. So let's see what he says. Verse 33 of chapter 14. For God, that's a good place to start. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches. As in all the churches. Paul is saying there is an order in all the churches. The order applies in all the churches. And what is the order? Verse 4, or verse 34, Let your woman keep silence in the churches. You see, Paul was aware. If this is not dealt with in Corinth, it'll spread. If it isn't suppressed in Corinth, it'll start spreading through the other churches of the saints. And he says, let your woman keep silence. In the churches. Why? For it is not permitted unto them to speak. Am I reading this correctly? It is not permitted for them to speak. But they are commanded, they are commanded to be under obedience. We got that. Commanded 
to be under obedience as also saith the law. Now, whose commandment is this? First of all, the apostle is speaking with apostolic authority. And apostolic authority says throughout the churches of the saints, the woman must be silent. It is not permitted for her to speak. Whose commandment is it that does not permit her to speak? Apostolic commandment to begin with. But then what does Paul say? As also saith the law. It's not the apostle introducing something new. It's not the apostle saying, this is the New Testament church, and we're going to do things different. He says the law also says it. And then look further down to verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you, these very things, that the woman is to be silent in the churches, she's not permitted to speak, By apostolic authority, she's not to speak. According to God's law, she's not to speak. But let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And will you have that expression? It's a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So here you have the threefold prohibition. It is as clear, it could not be clearer, the place of the woman in the church is to be silent. Now, why does Paul write to Timothy? If you go over to 1 Timothy chapter 2, he's writing to a young pastor, a young bishop in the church in chapter 2 of the first epistle to Timothy. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He's giving him advice and counsel for his future ministry. Verse 11, for the sake of time, let the woman learn in silence. Yes, she's to learn. But she's to learn in silence, undisturbed, with all subjection. With all Subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach. 
nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So now we put together three things that are forbidden. She is not to teach in the churches of the saints. She is not to speak in the churches or the assemblies, as it means, of the saints. Nor is she to usurp authority in the assemblies of the saints. Those are three things that are forbidden. Now you can see from 1 Timothy 2 what Paul is up against and what Timothy was going to be confronted with because the Gnostics who were around in Paul's time and times of the apostles, many of them believed, you see, that Adam wasn't created first. It was actually Eve. That's why Paul says here, for Adam was formed, then Eve. He's putting correct what is erroneously taught in the circles of the church at that time. Now, how do we apply these indisputable principles? Let your Christian woman Keep silence in the assemblies, the ecclesia, the assemblies of the saints. What does that mean? What is this silence about? Why are they to keep silent? Why are they not to teach? Why are they not to usurp authority? over the man in the church. Why are they to be commanded, verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 14, they are commanded by Christ, by the law, by the apostles, commanded This isn't something that we can sit down and negotiate with Paul or negotiate with the Lord and say, well now, well Jesus, you know, I'm very gifted and I'm very knowledgeable. Surely there has to be an avenue for me to speak my peace. And after all, if I see error around, don't I need to speak up and and, uh, identify it? And if the men happen to be wronged, and I need to speak to them and put them right. They are commanded. Can you get it any stronger? Commanded to be under what? Obedience. 
Do you ever listen to conversations, husbands and wives? There's a giveaway every time. You'll know who's the boss in any house. You listen. What does a woman say? What does a wife say? It's always the giveaway. My husband agrees with me. My husband agrees with me. It's not that I agree with my husband. My husband always agrees with me. That's the sure giveaway. What does Paul tell these Corinthian women? They are to be under obedience in the church. And in the assemblies, they're to be silent and not endeavor to teach. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. And here it is. And if you love God's word, and if you love God's truth, and if you love Christ as the head of the church, look at this. For it is a shame. It is a shame. What's a shame? For woman to speak in the church. You go back to chapter 11, this same epistle. And what does Paul say if it's a shame for a woman to have her head sheathed or shorn? Then the woman, the Christian woman, ought to cover her head. We're not going into that now, but that's what happened when a woman committed adultery. She was unfaithful to her husband and was discovered. She was publicly shamed. She was taken and her hair was shaved and she became publicly disgraced. She was shamed and it was a shame for a Christian woman to appear as though she was a harlot or an unfaithful woman. Paul says, it is equally a shame for a Christian woman to speak in the assemblies or to attempt to teach or to usurp authority in the church's assemblies. And let me make it absolutely crystal clear. That does not simply apply 
to the assemblies for public worship on the Lord's Day. It's the assemblies of the churches. I remember quite a number of years ago at our synod that there were two men and there were two women that appeared the case had come up from a presbytery and they were at the bar and the moderator ruled the women are not permitted to speak because they are to be silent in the assemblies of Christ's church. And I believe that we need to be very, very careful that we do not allow to be introduced into this church, this spirit of not being under obedience. And when the oversight make a decision and a Christian woman, a Christian wife, not her husband, but her, decides, I'm not going to obey. And then, will take it upon herself to endeavor to teach ministers and elders, you're wrong. Is that teaching or is it not? You see where we are? By Christ's commandment, the woman, the Christian woman, is to know her place in the church of Christ. And if she doesn't, there's trouble. God is not the author of confusion. God is not the one who brings about confusion that the church doesn't know what the order is. And what do they do today? They resort to Paul's teaching in Galatia. Where there in in the epistle to the Galatians, Paul says in Christ there is neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor free, uh, neither Jew or Gentile, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. So therefore, in the church, under the gospel, whatever the man can do, the woman can do. If the man can preach, so can the woman. If the man can rule, so can the woman. If the man can speak, so can the woman. That's what it teaches. Well, that's pretty absurd reasoning. Even a child could work out that a man doesn't become a woman or a woman a man under the gospel. They don't suddenly, as soon as they're converted, become bisexual. They remain a man and they remain a woman 
to fit into the divine order. And you and I have to face the reality. The divine order is being undermined in every direction today. You have it going back to the days whenever General Booth was impressed with his wife speaking and then opened up the door for females preaching and addressing the Church of Christ. I know it was in a different context. Nevertheless, it opened up the door. We have arrived at the state now where even in what is called the Reformed Church, woman ministers, woman elders, woman this, woman that, the order remains. This woman in Revelation 17, representing a system that the redeemed singing saints in Revelation 15 are singing because they've gotten the victory over it. One of the peculiarities, one of the distinctives, of the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And it has its faults. And I would be, as you all well know, I'd be one of the first to admit it, and always have done and always will do, I hope. But in spite of everything, down through our history, our women have been role models as to feminine godliness. And may God preserve that. And may God forbid that the devil would bring the spirit of that feministic system into our midst. Take note of what Paul was teaching and the authority for which he taught it, the commandment of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that we have thy word to guide us aright. We have the order for the church led down by Christ, its living head. May we then be laying to heart thy word. Keep us, we pray, from straying from it. Keep us, we pray, from the spirit of the age in which we live. And bless our woman and grant them grace to take that place that is theirs, exhibiting true, humble, meek, and holy character. Bless thy word to us. Pardon all our sins. Receive us. For Christ's sake. Amen.